Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a returning guest, Jared Bias, who is the co-host of the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and co-author of the book, Genesis for Normal People. He's a former teaching pastor and professor of philosophy and biblical studies, and he lives with his wife, Sarah, outside of Philadelphia with their four children. And he has written a new book called Love Matters More. Jared, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. You have a great voice for podcasting, by the way. <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's good to hear. I'm glad you enjoy this. I recently upgraded my setup here at the advice of my audio guy. So hopefully things are sounding better and better yep, yep. every episode. right? Affirmation. You sound great. Okay, good. So uh, you were on episode 42, I remember, because I was looking at it and I was like, wow, it's been forever since I've had Jared. But this is like the perfect time to talk about your, your new book. You've written a book called Genesis for Normal People. You're in a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. So are, are you normal or is this just sort of a marketing thing? We get that all the time. And you know what? I'm, I mean, our mission is to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about normal people, we get all that all the time. I don't know if I'm normal or whatever, but for us, it just means if you don't have a PhD in biblical studies, then you're a normal person because mm. we don't want to have just these esoteric conversations with all these big words that people don't know. We want to make it accessible and practical. And a lot of us who grew up in the church, that's what we thought the Bible was. But we want to bring some of the scholarship behind the Bible Mm -hmm. to everyday people. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this new book called Love Matters More. You've had lots of conversations with people. I'm sure you don't agree with every single one of them because that's, that's literally impossible to agree with every single person you have a conversation with. And right now, we're recording this in September of 2020, and I kind of, you know, I finished your book, and I'm thinking, I hope Zondervan sent copies to all politicians and people running for office, because they need this message. We Fighting to be right, and right as in like fighting to be correct about things, has kept us from loving like Jesus. That's sort of like the thesis of your book. Now, it's not a matter of, like, your book isn't saying, here's how we got there. Your book is saying, here's what we need to, to look ahead to. Right. Yeah. So your book kind of came out at the right time. And, you know, I know you've been working on it for a few years. One of the first chapters in the book is only God knows it's an elephant. And could you recount, I think most people are familiar with the whole three blind men and an elephant story, but just like recount that and sort of illustrate some of the issues uh, with that story. Yeah, so it, it's a common picture, word picture that people paint to, to talk about, hey, we need to be humble because we all come at things from different perspectives. And so there's this story of the the blind men who come across an elephant in the jungle and, you know, one puts their hand up and says, oh, it's a wall uh, as they feel the side of the elephant. And another one maybe feels the tail and says, oh, no, it's a rope. And another person says, no, you know, it's a tree as they feel the leg of the of the elephant. And there's some really important lessons to learn from that, which is, yeah, you know, we all see things from different perspectives. But there's also this uh, scary thought that it depends on us knowing that it's an elephant for us to get the point. And so I raised the question, you know, what if only God knows it's an elephant? And then we're stuck in this world where we all have partial knowledge and we can't see around the wall. We can't see beyond the tail 
and the leg to see that it's an elephant. We still are convinced and we are dogmatic that it really mm-hmm. is a wall mm-hmm. and that it really is a tail. And it's just a call to, to humility to recognize that none of us have the God's eye view. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does seem like a lot of Christians feel like they know it's an elephant. Right. Yeah, that, that's that been my experience. Yeah. And and I think what you're you're trying to do somewhat in the book here is to help people have a little bit of humility with respect to what they claim to know. Yeah, absolutely. And and when we can when we can pry that space between absolute truth and our experience of it, when we have that little mm. bit of space, I think we can be humble to hear from other people and see that they may have something valuable to add to the truth. So you you had the same boogeyman in your growing up years that I heard about. Do you want to talk about the postmodern boogeyman? Yeah, it's, you know, and I think I referenced the book. I think John MacArthur has a book like that's explicitly yeah. anti-postmodernism. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately for me, I actually studied philosophy and I studied it at Liberty University. And even, even at Liberty, there was, you know, a little bit more of an honest, critical understanding of mm-hmm. postmodernism as a way of recognizing that maybe we've we've put our stake in the ground in the wrong way or that we've overemphasized what truth can deliver for us and there's a, a really postmodernism in the way that i'm i'm looking at it and the authors i'm referencing really just pulling out one point and that is their recognition that maybe only god knows it's an elephant and and so and how much harm has come from people groups or leaders or politicians who think that they do know the ultimate mm-hmm. truth mm-hmm. and then the only you know and then they coerce others into that reality yeah if somebody asks you like what do you think it means to know something what kind of answers or questions do you have when when you hear somebody talk about that well i always i like to think of this idea that um, it struck me a while ago that often we use this word being certain about something Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that one insight for me was recognizing that even if we are certain, we could still be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that really certainty is a feeling. I feel certain. And that's helpful for me because I used to be someone who was really dogmatic about what I knew and I was always right and everything else. And then I got married and <laughs> my wife would point out to me these times when I was like dogmatic. And it was over such silly things like, no, I remember, I distinctly remember I put the keys right here and then you know, 20 minutes later after we argue for a while, she finds them like 30 feet down the hall. And I'm right, like, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> I thought, you know, like this feeling of certainty and then the recognition that I was wrong, it's, it's, it's unsettling. It can shake you a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's holding anything that we say we know, it's holding that lightly unless we are talking about the natural end of a, I would say, of a established process. So I think I would be more comfortable saying that we, as a community of specialists in a particular area, know something. Mm-hmm. For instance, the scientific method um, and science scientists and epidemiologists and oncologists and people who study even, even more specific than just doctors. But each field has its own area or, or methodology. And I think the result of that is when we can say we know something. Um, mm-hmm. But even then... I think we have to hold it because that process may turn up some surprising results. We knew all kinds of things in the 1700s that turned out to be wrong. And in a hundred years, we'll quote unquote, have to unknow all the things that, Mm. you know, a lot of the things we think we know now. You know, you just mentioned a few people that we should, you know, who, who quote unquote, know things. 
Um, and if somebody's listening to this in like five years from now, they, they well, maybe five years from now they would, but if they listen to this really far into the future, they may not know what you're referencing. And you're referencing the fact that currently we're dealing with a pandemic and there are people who are trying to know as best as possible what to do. And the people who, and we don't need to get into the weeds there, but the people who are sort of, you know, advising those calling the shots have access to power. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that, you know, your book argues for each of us, the readers, to have some epistemological humility and be like, all right, well, we, we may not know as much as we think we know. And how certain we feel doesn't mean that that's how, much, how accurate we are in our, not, in our knowledge. But what happens when we feel that other people aren't acting that way? Like, how do we, this is a little off, a tiny bit off topic from the book, but I, I feel like it's it's worth exploring a little bit because we have this sort of like skepticism of other people's certainty, right? Mm-hmm. And not our own. But then we also have to deal with and even sometimes speak truth to the powers that that are actually, you know, being abusive. And I'm not making a judgment call on how that's happening right now. That's not what I'm trying to ask. Because it can happen in any situation, but I don't know. What do you? What if? What's? What are some of your thoughts? Well, I think that we have to be very honest with ourselves about what's at stake if we're wrong. And you mentioned power, and I think that's an important component here of what we're talking about. Is a lot of times the reason I advocate for love mattering more is because I think we have these mixed motives in most of our interactions, and so I think the more we can be aware of those, whether it's power. Mm-hmm or the need to be right, or our own egos, or our identity is wrapped up in this one belief or this one thing, we have to recognize that those get in the way of our own uh, kind of seeing things rightly. So I think that's an important part to consider in when we're talking to someone. You know, I think the other thing I would say is, what does it look like to uphold the process of truth finding over the conclusions that we come to? Because when we can do that, it doesn't, you know, your agenda and the powers that be, that's fine. But if you get into the minutia of, say, you know, healthcare or the minutia of disease control on a massive scale in public health, there's some pretty tested principles that we can follow through. It's when we kind of start to interpret the data that we can start to mm-hmm. get into trouble. Yeah. You talk in your book about three types of truth, and I don't know if you're intending that to be an exhaustive, here's the exact three categories. I think uh, that would belie your whole point, but what are some of those types of truth? Yeah, and in the spirit of the Bible for normal people, you know, I try to keep it at the risk of oversimplifying, um, keep it simple for for Mm -hmm. people. So Mm -hmm. I think of these three, really it was just backing out, you know, early on, a few years before I wrote this book, I was curious about this question of how do people use the word truth? And I set up some interviews with folks and just said, hey, just let's talk about truth. Not They were just everyday folks. They weren't people who have PhDs in epistemology or anything like that. What do you mean by truth when you say it? And through mm-hmm. these interviews, I came to this conclusion that we use these this word three three different ways. And, and it's important because I think we can be frustrated in conversations about truth because we don't realize we're equivocating. We're using different uh, meanings of the same word. So the first is, you know, fact truths. And we often talk about that to talk about, again, the physical reality and the outcomes through the scientific method and these other ways of understanding how the world works as if everyone were dead. So if we took the human element out of it and we just saw what the world was like with, you know, we could beam up all human beings out of the earth and just see the natural world as it is, that would be the facts of, of earth 
and uh, or historical facts of what really happened, those sorts of things. Then we talk about the second, which is meaning truths. And that's the human experience. The human experience as it relates to other humans, the human experience as it relates to the natural world, that meaning component. So when we say the Bible is true, we may mean, are we talking about it's historically accurate? It's talking about it's uh, scientific, mm-hmm. you know, theories? Or are we talking about it being meaningful for understanding what it means to be human in this world? Mm-hmm. And then the third one is wisdom truth, which I'm, I'm a big proponent for because it goes beyond thinking that reality is all about our heads and having the right beliefs. But wisdom truth is this embodiment. It's a life well lived. And I think that's an important component. You know, often in the old Greek literature, if you read uh, Aristotle and these, when they talk about uh, doing things truly, it's like doing things truly is like uh, as an arrow shoots true. It's straight. It's it's embodied. It's experiential. It's the everyday life. It's not just beliefs in our head that we check off as being correct or accurate. Yeah, I mean... I like that categorization, you know, fact, meaning, and wisdom, because, you know, we can sort of see that. I mean, maybe maybe uh, one way to think of it, or the way I sort of picture it is like, you know, fact truths or things are a little bit more certain, like two plus two equals four. Right. Although apparently that's come under scrutiny lately. But uh, <laughs> just look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about, read, uh, listeners. Uh, and then, then there's meaning truths, and that would be something like, you know, Jared loves his wife, Sarah, and his children, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't prove or validate either of those in the exact same way. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, they take a different, it's a different, uh, yeah, trying to find out the validity would take a different process. Yep. Yeah, and then the wisdom truth, it's like the validity of it actually just morphs over time. Like your, you know, wisdom as a father, right? Like you mm-hmm. were probably not as wise as you were five years, uh, no, wait, how did I say, I would say that backward here. You probably weren't as wise as you were to, as you are today, five years ago, right? Correct, yeah, um, yeah. At least I hope, I hope that's the case. And so you sort of like, that becomes validated over time that you gain, that you gain wisdom. And, you know, I don't really have any real reservations about that at all. I can imagine that even people who want to agree with you, and especially some of your critics, would sort of say that, well, no, Jared, truth, truth is truth. And okay, so that's tautological, but it's like, Truth is truth, and you got to stand up for it. And you know you can't you can't go around you know saying that truth has these different nuances because then it's just a slippery slope into you know I don't know hedonism and you know heresy and everything else. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate in terms of what people would say or people have already said. And yeah. Yeah, to that, it's just a matter of. I mean, I think that's okay. People are welcome to have whatever opinion they would like, but I think what it doesn't do, I'm, I'm a pragmatist at heart. And mm-hmm. I think without understanding those nuances, we can't communicate as well. We can't talk to one another because we will be ships passing in the night. If I say something like, hey, the Bible is true, and what I mean is it gives us real insight about what it means to be human, and you mean by it, it's historically accurate. So a great example would be the, you know, the book of Jonah, where one person might say the book of Jonah is true. And mm-hmm. I would say, absolutely. Um, however, what that means to me is it speaks some deep yeah. truths about what it means to love our neighbors and to love our enemies. And they may say, no, no, no. I mean that Jonah was really, you know, swallowed by a big fish. And for me, it's not so much, it's a matter of focus and energy. Is I would rather put yeah, my energy... Yeah toward learning to love my neighbor, what do you get out of saying that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish other than to say, 
okay, I'm you're right, I guess. I I don't know what the practical import of that is. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I mean, I'm sure people have an answer to that who who are of that side of the equation. There's a, you know, speaking of being a pragmatist, I'm sort of the same way and to me, the existence of the ability to say, yes, I believe that the book of Jonah is true when two people might disagree over what you just described is that you can kind of avoid the nitpicky conversations over like you can kind of nod with people when they say things and say, yeah, I, I agree that Jonah's true. Right. You don't have to get into what you don't agree about, right? Like you can sort of still agree on the meaning. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I which, think that's which, true. which is very, I think, really, really helpful mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, I've argued with people over things like inspiration and inerrancy. And we come to very similar sort of meaning out of what what we mean in those conversations right. but they you know often people come to me and say they'll they'll come back with me and say but but you have to believe it because of these reasons like for the same reasons i believe it and in the same exact way right. <laughs> so it's like the meaning part is the same but the factual underlying whatever they think is the foundation of those meanings is is very different so there's a little bit of convenience in this too um, I think, in terms of a practical, from a practical perspective. Right, but I think it's also deeper than that, because when I read the Bible, what I sense isn't just a pragmatism, but that what seems to be the the important emphasis is on how we live our lives. And so, the scaffolding we use to get there, like you say, the the reasons why, that seems to be less important than, you know, I think of James, where he says, you know, uh, you say you believe in God, good, well, even the devils, even yeah. the demons believe in God and shudder. Like, so belief, even in that passage, doesn't seem to be the end-all, be-all to the point. It's more, okay, but what does your belief motivate you to do in the world? And this yeah. is also where it says true religion is this, you know, and we take care of the orphans and the widows and that sort of thing. So another objection people might have when we talk about fact versus meaning versus wisdom, and people would say things like, if you work your way, so yeah, of course the Bible is there. I mean, I went to a very conservative Bible college and I remember one of the professors in like the freshman Bible class basically was saying, the Bible isn't here for you to know anything. It's not a text, not, no, sorry, he didn't say it that way. He said, the Bible isn't here for you to know things like a textbook. It is here to change your life. Basically, the Bible is here to change you and transform you so that your behavior reflects the love of Christ, yeah. right? So this is a really conservative college institution that I went to. And I'm already hearing that the Bible isn't there as a textbook. I don't think I got that until I was in my like mid-20s, even though I heard it earlier. And I'm looking back, oh, okay, you know, Professor Boykin, he, he, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. And, and he, had, he had a heart for, for the people, and he was also my RA there at the school, and he had a heart for the people in, under his care. And, but some people might say, well, you can't have wisdom if you don't find meaning, and you can't find meaning if you don't have the right facts. Like, how can you have the right meaning about a passage if you don't believe it happened or something along those lines would be like, well, you can't find meaning without the fact truth. Yes, I think that is not true. Um, and even the way you said it is if, if you don't have the right meaning. The, mm-hmm. the problem with that is I don't know what that means to have the right meaning. So there is mm. what we would call authorial intent. Like this is what the author meant when the author said this. But meaning by itself, just the word meaning implies a relationship. So uh, there is a, a philosopher who calls it the merging of horizons, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's when your intentions meet my understanding. And that's, 
pretty basic for every Sunday morning across the United States, we have pastors who are applying the Bible to our lives. And it depends that the idea of applying the Bible to our life depends upon this dual understanding of meaning, that there's what the author intended, but you know what? The author did not intend when it says, um, you know, whenever we preach a sermon on the wisdom of, you know, staying focused and on not being, you know, putting other gods before us. How many sermons have I heard that says, hey, maybe your iPhone is an idol. Maybe you've put your iPhone before God. Well, what, mm-hmm. what do you mean then that the Bible meant that? Well, no, there, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that no author of the Bible intended the iPhone. So we're already back at, you know, meaning yeah. depends upon the listener as much as the author. And that's yeah. the beauty yeah. of it, but that's also the messiness of it because it yeah. keeps us from saying things like the right meaning. Right. For idols, I, they've unlikely had, again, we're not going to say with certainty, because that's a sin, right? Uh, <laughs> we're not going to say with certainty that for idols, they meant everyday things that became of higher importance than an ultimate goal. They literally meant idols the way we think of his, you know, ancient right. history mm-hmm. idols, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, my iPhone is someday is an idol, but it's not what Paul or any other biblical writers meant by that. Right. So yeah, no, that's good. And you know, there's, the, there's like a third layer there in that we believe that the, the scriptures are inspired and so that the Holy Spirit has some sort of intentionality going on and so when Paul writes, I forget what uh, book it was in, where he talks about, he has sort of a, a pejorative term for, for Cretans, I think, or something. I don't think he meant it the same way the Holy Spirit might have intended that to be included in the canon, right? So like, then there's like, what does God want us to have out of this versus why did Paul write it down or any, any person? Right, right. Um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. And also though, recognizing that the Spirit of God is alive and well today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's part of the equation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the title, Love Matters More, and we're kind of, we've been talking about truth a lot. So let's, let's shift to love. And the idea of love can be very, very vague. It can be very specific. It can be like everybody is going to have their, their notion of love in the same way that people have different notions of truth. So let's start from you where you come out on you know, what does it mean to say, I love this, I love that? What does love mean? Yeah, and I'll, my disclaimer here is I think that my hope is more books actually come out about this. So this isn't a definitive definition of love. It's more of a, a look at the relationship between truth and love. But the, the definition I use comes from Bell Hooks, um, who I think borrowed it from M. Scott Peck. But it's the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. So the will to extend yourself for the purpose of nurturing someone else's spiritual growth. And then she goes on to say there's other ingredients, and she talks about care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, trust, honest and open communication, this kind of litany of things. So for me, I define love as the this thing between humans. So I don't talk about, you know, what does it mean to love ice cream or anything like that? Right. Uh, because it's really in the sense of how do we love each other even when we disagree fundamentally about some important stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when, in what ways do people sort of abuse saying they love something or somebody, I'm sorry, I should say. How do they abuse it? Maybe give me yeah. an example of what you're thinking. 
Well, so I, I, there are parents who say they love their children and yet they verbally abuse them by any, by let's just for the sake of this discussion, assume that anybody on looking would say that what they're doing is verbal abuse. Let's say there's no disagreement by other people, but the parent says, oh, but, but, but I love my child and I just want them to change their behavior so that they have a good life. And that's why I yell at them all the time or something like that. Right, right. Well, I think it's, it's helping to realize that we, what we, uh, what we mean by love Two things. I think it has to extend beyond just feelings. I think that's important. Now, the, the flip side of that, though, is I think it actually is important. Feelings are important when it comes to love. But I don't think it, we can def- identify it by only loving. And then secondly, I think we have to extend it to the opinion and experience of the lovey, of the other person in the relationship. So we talk about... Um, intention versus impact. So your intention might be to love, but if that person doesn't feel loved or if it's not extending their spiritual mm-hmm. growth and helping them become human beings in a healthier sense, then we can't call that love. So it can't just be a one-sided uh, definition. So again, meaning is a two-sided coin. So we have to have the intention to love and the impact of it being love. Hmm. Okay. So in, in my head, here's where that goes. And, and I don't know if this is just some sort of latent, I don't want to agree with you kind of like <laughs> pushback. Not that I don't agree with uh-huh. you. I like everything on the surface. I'm like, yeah, no, that sounds really good. But, you know, there's those things in the back of my mind. What if the, you know, the motivation is important and clearly the feeling of like, I have this heartfelt, like I want to do what's best for my children or whatever, or, or just another person, right? And if that person's experience is... Oh, I don't even know what the word is, like shaded or compromised by their life experience. Is there a sense in which the recipient could just be completely misinterpreting and therefore what I'm doing is truly loving, but they just can't receive it? Or is it a matter, I know this is a messy answer, but is it a matter of like, oh, okay, well, I need to recognize that their past, they have trauma history or they're compromised in some way, and therefore I need to adjust my strategy in loving them? Yeah, I think what you're, what you're pinpointing is the messiness of it. And that's, you know, I guess I can anticipate people who would say, aha, see, I found a, an example of where what you're talking about doesn't fit, therefore everything you've said is like invalidated, right? It's like, right, yeah, right. that it's messy. That, you know, that would be, that would be the trick of a relationship is figuring out, okay, I said this in the most loving way I knew how. And I think it comes back to the labor of love. And I think that's important here because, you know, this phrase, telling the truth in love, or I'm just telling you this because I love you, that's been used, that's been weaponized in my life. It's been weaponized in a lot of people's life that I know. And what the, usually what it comes back to is that person didn't earn the right to give me their opinion because they haven't labored with me. They haven't put in the emotional deposit, the work that it takes to earn that space to tell me the truth in love because you're not in love. You haven't, you haven't sort of established the love part. So just telling someone that my, your opinion of me doesn't automatically make it loving just because you're right. Yeah, okay. All right, well, let's, let's go to the Bible here. And I would love to hear because... You know, we could talk about truth and love, and we, we've talked about the Bible here, but what are some of the influences in Scripture that have sort of led you on this journey? You said you were really strongly dogmatic in like a decade or so ago, and as you were growing up, and now you're not quite that. Like, obviously, the Scriptures have influenced you, and I would love to hear more about where, what are some, some of the stronger influences? Yeah, I mean, for as far as what you mentioned, your 
professor telling you early on that it's about this life of lived out love. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I came back a lot as I was writing this book, but I think also just in general, to passages in John and First John where he actually uses the phrase walking in the truth. And, and it's actually in Second John and Third John as well. And I, I kept saying, okay, well, but in my experience, truth, truth is this abstract belief that we either check off or we don't check off. Like, okay, if I believe this and it's, and it's accurate, then it's a true belief. And that's how I think about truth. So it was always a little disconcerting to me to read this walk in the truth. What, what does it mean mm-hmm. to use a verb there, to walk in yeah. the truth? And so unpacking that for a little bit did bring me back to this more wisdom, lived out truth. And again, that's where for me, while the book is called Love Matters More, I come to the conclusion in the book that truly they're not separate things. That if walking in truth, if truth is actually an embodied thing that we can do, we can walk in truth. And if the fulfillment of the law that, you know, Romans 13, uh, Paul talks about that uh, all these laws are the fulfillment. Of course, Jesus, he gets this from Jesus, uh, who is asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? And, and it's that we love the Lord your God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Everything is summed up in this. So if truth is something we can do, and the thing that sums up all the things that we can do is love, then in this biblical sense, truth and love aren't opposed. They're the same thing. Mm. Well, it's definitely true in the wisdom sense, for sure. Right. Yeah. I think the theology nerds are going to want to like ask questions about, but what about this? But what about that? You know, I don't, I don't quite have all those at my, you know, I'm sure there are things to oppose in everything I'm saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, if you're humble, you weren't right on everything, right? That's right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And I'm, I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy. To yeah, I know you are. <laughs> so you actually say something in your book that could be controversial if there isn't you know, if it isn't taken out of context, or if it is taken out of context, there are hundreds of ways to interpret the Bible. And we agree, uh, because people do it. I mean, it's, it's done. We see it all the time. People interpret the Bible hundreds of different ways, probably thousands, right? Just make sure they lead to love. And, you know, the, the cynic in the back of my mind, and possibly some of our listeners are thinking, yeah, but how do I know that what I'm doing is leading to love? And I know that you sort of just touched on that, but it, the whole like walking in truth, like how do you walk in this abstract concept? It can sort of cause a mental disconnect. So I just want to explore that a little bit further. Like, what does that mean? Like, can we interpret the Bible more than one way in in particular, you know, senses? And if we're, how can two people interpret the Bible differently, but both be right and or both be true if they're leading to love? I think that might be the sort of conflict that people might have. Yeah, I mean... There are, even just to go back to what you just said, you know, the the impetus or the impulse for saying that our iPhones are idols, and, and that may be a Sunday morning sermon, that th- that's what I'm getting from this text. That's the meaning of the text for me today or mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. congregation. The impulse for that is, you know, maybe it's taking time away from your kids. Um, maybe there are loving things that are, are need to be displayed more fully in your life, ways to love people better. Um, and someone may come up with a different interpretation because maybe it's not your iPhone. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there, there's infinite number of idols that we can substitute in there for what that means. And then also just understanding the, you know, the wisdom of the Bible. Wisdom, in some ways, by definition, requires wisdom to know how to apply it. 
And so we mm-hmm. have these passages in in the scriptures. I'm thinking of Proverbs in particular, where you have one, you know, proverb, you know, answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. And then the very next verse is don't answer a fool according to their folly, lest you be like him. And so we have to interpret those in different ways because they're like, which one do we choose when under what circumstance Mm -hmm. is usually determined by the circumstance we're in. And I would say, how do we decide how to interpret it, how to filter it? I think through this lens of love, which by the way, is ever changing, not ever changing. That's probably overstating it, but I think it's different. I think it's different generationally. I think Mm -hmm. what I would think of as loving 20 years ago, I don't think of as necessarily as loving today. Hopefully I'm growing in my understanding of what love is and what it means and how to do it in my network and in my community and in my congregation. Like that's a, it's a slippery concept because it's necessarily relational. Right. And relationships change the way in which our generation relates to our children and the relationship that we had with our parents is quite different. I mean, you recount a few in uh, episodes, if you will, of your uh, experience with your mom mm-hmm. and also with your children and how those things are those things are definitely different. So, th- yeah, that does that really does make it messy. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, no problem. That's usually what I do is I, I problematize things. I don't I don't solve yeah, problems. I just make them more messy. Um, but you know, you, you, did, of you. <laughs> you did mention something that I think is important to realize is the examples that most people go to is my kids. And I think that's important because I, I make note of this in the book that the way to love a child is often very different than how to love an adult. And I think we don't do a good job. And I mean that just overgeneralization. I can make it personal. I don't think I had done a good job of learning how to love adults. Because I think a lot of the examples we use and a lot of the things we see growing up are how to love kids. And there's a control element that's different. And I think that's mm. important. That what's appropriate, and you know, we were just talking about the messiness of love. Yeah, what it meant for me to love my son well in the same situation when he's six is vastly different than when he's 12. And it's different again when he's 20. Yeah, And we have to recognize that development. And otherwise, we end up controlling people and calling it loving. Yeah, it, it, it's really, man, children are like, having children is such a blessing and such a challenging, I would say it's like a challenging blessing, right? Like, I wouldn't want to be an adult at my age, not as a father. Mm-hmm. I'm a better person, not because my kids have made me better, per se, uh, in, in that, in like, I mean, obviously they've made me better because I've had to wrestle with them. But like the wrestling and the, like the, not just wrestle wrestling, but like the wrestling with their personalities, right? Right. Has been a challenge for me and I'm better for it, you know? Yep. Um, And yeah, you're agreeing. So, you know, of course our children have that, you know, and they're, I don't know, like, I guess the analogy of the children or just the example of children and the experience we have in loving them at different ages. I mean, clearly we don't love them the same at those different ages. Actually sort of is a good picture for how we love other people because other people, adults, are sort of like in certain ways, like at different levels of maturity, different mm-hmm. ways of relating to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you you don't treat me in the same way that you treat your co-hosts, that you treat your clients that you treat your wife, like we have a different, like there's different layers of relationships that we all have. So yeah, that, that, that picture really does help. Mm -hmm. um, I I think in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So there's a, I'm going to, I'm going to be like the kid in the class who's like, yeah, but what about this? 
um, with with one more thing for you here. So you and I grew up and went to school and learned how to defend the scriptures in a certain way. And we would, you know, look to the scriptures and say, well, yeah, but what about this passage? And what about that? And what about this principle? And what about that? So what you're doing here in your book is you're talking about it leading to love, right? And this sort of, and people are going to want to know like, well, how is this not just like letting the Bible just mean whatever you want it to mean as long as you somehow end up with love? Because inevitably someone's going to say, Jared, you're not being loving with your interpretation because this is what it leads to. And they just define love a certain way. And, and so the, the ante is upped to like, well, you didn't use the right hermeneutical principle to, well, yours just doesn't lead to love. And they'll just point out to you, well, this is how it doesn't lead to love because look at the results that you're having. Okay, yeah. I don't know if you followed all of that. or Yeah, maybe say it in a, in, a, in a different way. I, I think I'm tracking, but I want to make I sure. I am not the I'm king on. of succinct questions. Um, people will use... They'll just say, well, your interpretation doesn't lead to love and therefore it's wrong rather than your hermeneutical principle doesn't lead, uh, is, right. is incorrect and mm-hmm. therefore your conclusions about scriptures or whatever. So you look at a text and someone says, well, I can't agree with that because it doesn't lead to love. Mm-hmm. Right. And How do you I, have a conversation with somebody who just sort of like tries to sort of take out the foundation there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things to say. One is I think that when we're talking about the historical study of the Bible in the way that biblical scholarship would frame it, I would call some of those more fact truths, those mm. facts of, uh, you know, those are the results of, of historical scholarship um, when we're talking about uh, biblical study. The problem with fact truths is they don't mean anything. So you can't rely on facts to mean anything um, because facts don't mean they, they just are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once we get to that point, it's like, okay, where are you trying to prove the facts? Okay, mm-hmm. like I guess we just end there. But if we're talking about what it means, then I see no problem in having love as that lens through which we read it. And then we have the conversation of what do you mean it doesn't it doesn't lead to love? What do you mean by love? How do we have this conversation? How do we have the relationship? And in a lot of ways, the Bible becomes the foundation of these diverse and wonderful conversations and relationships. I mean, one of the problems I think we have with the Bible is uh, I think as John Levinson said, he's a Jewish scholar, he said, you know, Mm -hmm. the problem is uh, in terms of how we approach the Bible, you Christians, and he means this in a good way, he says, you know, Christians, you think of it as a package, as a present that needs to be a message that's to be proclaimed. And Jews, we think of it as a problem, a problem Mm -hmm. to be discussed and argued about. And I really appreciate that perspective because I think so many Christians underlying is this anxiety to get it right because our whole job is to like package it in certain ways so that we can proclaim it and make it, we can convince people of it. But mm. I appreciate my, you know, the, our Jewish cousins who say, no, what if, what if it's the relationship? What if the arguing, if you've ever seen like Fiddler on the Roof or these other pieces of, of Jewish culture, what if it's the relationship with the text, this antagonism, this back and forth where we find true life and find relationship. It's not in being right. It's being side by side. And it's that sharpening like you talked about with our children. I think we do that with one another. I have so many relationships where I don't agree with what you say about the Bible and you don't agree with me, but if we can let love matter more, we can find ourselves sharpened and we can find ourselves growing in that capacity to love. And that for me is the whole point. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Jared, I really appreciate your book. I encourage our listeners to read it. And it's it's not lengthy. It's a fairly easy read, but it's just chock full of, well, three kinds of truth. Fact, truth, meaning, truth, and wisdom, truth. It's, it's helped me see the world a little differently. 
and I think for the better. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Excellent. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.